finally being able to be in my field and not feeling like I was the minority kind of opened it up for for all of us and we were able to be more free with each other and discuss more and had more communications and were more open um, and being able to bring that feeling across the board whether it's for minorities now and women or uh, race or you know gender preferences like the more you can equalize the field so more people are able to be free to be themselves you open up that potential and you open up communication and uh, by doing that you're able to listen to everyone you're able to hear these ideas and that's really when you're utilizing the the group at a maximum and that's when you're really unlocking the potential and uh able to leverage that to solve these hard problems like to to solve what needs to be worked or to have the creativity to think outside the box to um to solve these big problems so if we can you know support getting to that stage i think we'll see a huge benefit from it that we're not necessarily able to see to see right now when the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover reached its destination on February 18th, 2021, the world was watching. Their eyes were also focused on Dr. Swati Mohan, the lead guidance, navigation, and control system engineer for the mission. Video of Dr. Mohan confirming touchdown went viral with many calling her the beauty with brains, bindi, and braids. Her NASA role led Dr. Mohan to another opportunity becoming a U.S. Speaker Program Exchange alumni. Everyone has a story to tell. People, places, and international exchange. Join us to hear the extraordinary stories of exchange alumni and how their lives have been forever changed. This is Voices of Exchange. Hi, my name is Swathi Mohan. I was the lead guidance, navigation, and control system engineer and operations lead for the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover uh, and the mission commentator during landing day on February 18th, 2021. So as part of um, that awareness, I was invited to do a inaugural Diaspora Dialogues talk that was sponsored by the State Department and the U.S. Embassy in India as a Voices of Exchange to try to bring awareness of how the uh, Indian diaspora is uh, operating and succeeding in the United States to foster interest and collaboration discussion, basically, between the U.S. and India. I did a single session for them, their inaugural session, and it was a basically a 45-minute talk or so uh, where I kind of talked about my life journey and how I went, you know, I was born in India and how I came to the U.S. and uh, and my career path. And then there was time for question and answers that they took from uh, multiple different places. Uh, it was co-streamed throughout the different embassies in India simultaneously. So in Delhi, Mumbai, uh, Chennai, and a couple of other places. Places. So I think the whole event lasted for about an hour, hour and a half. Um, and the uh, audience was primarily Indians in India, I believe, but there were also some, uh, you know, dispersed from the U.S. Uh, through their connection with me or through the State Department. 
you know, it was really interesting. And the I think because of the pandemic, then we had to do this in the middle of the, the pandemic. It was all virtual, which gave it the benefit of being able to be, you know, simultaneously broadcast across multiple different centers. But then also the downside where I couldn't actually go to India and I couldn't actually see, you know, the, the people asking the questions. So there's kind of pros and cons of, of having to do it over a Zoom platform. The question that I loved best was at the very end of what do you miss about about India? You know, it's um, been so long since I've actually been able to go. We were actually planning to go um, this year after landing day because I finally have vacation that I can take, you know, in a big chunk. Um, and the, the COVID pandemic has just prevented that. So that kind of sparked this, oh, I miss so much about India, you know, the street food and the culture and the festivals and visiting my family there because I still have a, a lot of family that I haven't seen in years just because we haven't been able to make it over. My family primarily lives in Karnataka. Um, I was born in a city called Bengaluru, uh, so I still have a lot of family there specifically. And actually, my husband's side of the family, um, his, they're also from Bengaluru. So when we go there, we that's kind of our, our home base and we have, feel like we're related to half the city. Um, but I I have some family also spread out a few in, in North India and in, in Tamil Nadu, but primarily in in Bangalore. Uh, how many times have I been able to go back? It varies over the, the course of my lifetime. You know, when we first came to this country, uh, I was only one and um, my parents couldn't afford to go back very often. You know, plane tickets back then were, were super expensive and they were still students and trying to pay for a family of four to to go over to India it was a it was a big ordeal so we went every five years or so and then um, around the time that I graduated from high school and during undergraduate and graduate school then it was a, a bit more frequent you know we were comfortable then and uh, we're able I was able to travel by myself and um, we went every two years or so. Actually, right after my college graduation, I went and lived in India with my grandparents for two months. And, you know, I took them all over South India to to travel and to see the different temples, which was a very um, unique experience that I'm, I'm glad I got to do with them before my grandmother passed. Uh, in the recent years, it has not been too often. Dr. Mohan's journey to becoming lead guidance, navigation, and control system engineer at NASA wasn't what she had planned. For a long time, she had another career in mind. Someone must have asked me when I was really little, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I said, I'm going to be a pediatrician because I just came back from the doctor's office. I don't know. And you could tell what they did. They made you feel better. So that's a noble profession. So I had gotten it stuck in my mind of, I said it, so that's what I told everyone. That's my goal, so you have to go do that goal. And I did everything from, like, candy striping and volunteering at the hospital to shadowing my aunt, you know, during her rounds to taking anatomy. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that, yeah, I could do it, and I liked the idea of it, but it just didn't – it wasn't for me. Like, the um, smell of the formaldehyde from the dissections and like I was not good with my hands to be able to do the dissections the memorization of just learning the parts of a cell like it took me forever to to memorize that because it didn't come easily whereas the physics you know the first day of class they're like okay f equals ma that's all you're going to learn 
this whole semester. Uh, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And then as long as you get that, you can do everything and you don't have to memorize. You don't need your books. Like that's, that's all you need. And just kind of fit how my brain thinks a lot better than the, uh, than the medicine did. So, uh, I gave that up, but I did end up marrying a pediatrician. So I I see some of it vicariously (laughs) through him. So how did Dr. Mohan end up working for NASA? Like another Voices of Exchange podcast guest, there was one particular TV show that encouraged her to go boldly where no woman had gone before. I happened to be watching Star Trek with my parents, and my dad was actually a pretty big science fiction fan. And my first episode was... I was really little, like seven or eight, maybe, probably too young to really understand what the plot line of the story was. But I remember the visual impact of that first episode that I saw where the the spacecraft gets kicked out into the middle of nowhere. And then they had shown the scenes of, you know, where they were. And it was just so beautiful, like the purples and the blues. And it was all like flowing. I was like, wow, is that what space is like? That's so cool. Um, I want to go there. Like, I want to be on the the bridge of a ship that goes to travel in space. Uh, And that just kind of got me hooked first into science fiction, you know, watching things like Star Trek or Star Wars. Uh, But then into, it got me more curious about what real space was like. So I would start checking out books on um, on the planets at first, like in the solar system and the moons, and then kind of dabbling in the cosmology and astrophysics part of it, like how did the universe form? And these were the books that I was checking out from the library for my fun reading, you know, uh, in my in my spare time. But that was always my hobby. I didn't I didn't translate that over to to having a career because it was very hard for me to understand what that meant in terms of a, a career. It wasn't until I was a junior in high school and I had a really great physics teacher that I that I was able to understand what it meant to to do engineering like what what it actually was to build these things for a purpose to go out and that was when I was actually confronted with it oh maybe I can make this a career oh this is what NASA actually does or what it means to you know build a a spacecraft to go to somewhere else and that's that was kind of my right angle of, okay, maybe I should go pursue this and figure out where my place in the space industry would be. I still love Star Trek. In addition to Star Trek, another big influencer on Dr. Mohan's decision to become an aerospace engineer was her physics teacher. She also had family members who served as great examples. But it's Dr. Mohan's experiences in graduate school and as a supervisor that had propelled her to encourage women to go into science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM, and unlock the potential it opens up. I don't know if I can say that there were others that influenced my decision directly, but I will say I had um, an aunt who was a really smart like PhD in computer science and was working in the field. So uh, she, along with, you know, my parents who are both in the STEM field and in more engineering-ish um, fields, they they served to, as examples, right, of you can be a woman going into this field that's 
you know, that is something that our family has some examples for. So you should go and, and try to, it didn't, um, it wasn't a direct correlation, but I think just having them in those fields and working in those fields helped to open the door as a possibility. And then once I, I made the decision to go into engineering, um, there are a lot of teachers, uh, professors at undergraduate and um, my graduate advisor, especially, and, and my PhD, that were uh, super influential in helping me to find my path and where I can succeed in helping me along that journey. I'm a big proponent of encouraging women to go into STEM, and I think part of it um, stems from my experience of uh, going through the engineering field. And, you know, in undergrad, I was one of 10 women in my in my graduating class of about 100, 115, right? So it was about 10%. And you could, you know, you felt the difference, right? Like you could feel that you were in the minority. I had the great fortune when I went to grad school um, in my lab, there happened to be a confluence of of women that just joined at the same time. So for the first time, there was like five women out of a, a graduating class of like seven. And that was the first time that I felt, oh, this is what it could feel like if it was actually, you know, equalized. Like the conversations in the lab were just different. And suddenly it it didn't make engineering one-sided because it wasn't all just about uh just about the work or, or that, like it became more overarching and we were able to trade, you know, life's experiences that were similar and encouraging. Um, and it kind of just made me flip the switches to understand what it could be like if it was fully equalized across the board. Um, and that kind of, that spurs it for me, right? Like I had, um, we had an admin in graduate school who was, really uh, invested in like seating us all into the same cubicle, right? And while I was there, I was like, oh, that's silly. Why is she, why is she doing that? Doesn't matter. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, maybe six months in that I realized why that was, because no matter how, how much um, we say when you're the minority, it does somewhat stifle your, um, willingness to put yourself out there and fully be yourself, no matter what type of minority you are in uh, in that field. And finally being able to be in my field and not feeling like I was the minority kind of opened it up for, for all of us. And we were able to be more free with each other and discuss more and had more communications and were more open. Um, and being able to bring that feeling across the board, whether it's for minorities, noun women, or uh, race, or, you know, gender preferences, like, the more you can equalize the field, so more people are able to be free to be themselves, you open up that potential, and you open up communication. And uh, by doing that, you're able to listen to everyone, you're able to hear these ideas. And that's really when you're utilizing the the group at a maximum and that's when you're really unlocking the potential and uh able to leverage that to solve these hard problems like to to solve what needs to be work or to have the creativity to think outside the box to um to solve these big problems so if we can you know support 
getting to that stage, I think we'll see a huge benefit from it that we're not necessarily able to see to see right now. And uh, so I'm right now in the supervisor position. So I have hiring authority. But from my perspective, like there are some base qualifications to hire into my group. And by the time you get to that, like the the pipeline just gets so small. By the time you can get to to hiring into my group, if you need a PhD, I can't make the job not need a PhD in that discipline, right? So it's a matter of keeping women or keeping minorities through the pipeline long enough to such that there is enough of a pool at that final stage to hire into these professions. Because if they drop out, you know, at every every sector, right? They drop out by not taking the classes in high school. They drop out by not going into the fields in undergrad. They drop out by not pursuing it for graduate school and going into, you know, business or econ and something instead. So by the time you get to my level of someone who wants to hire to get a diverse group, the the candidate pool is just not large enough to be to be selectable. So I'm all about helping to increase that pipeline in every every dimension all the way down to, you know, my daughters of five and 10 of getting it in front of them enough, you know, through various means, whether it's through uh, box kits that we, you know, work on together, like these snap circuits or, or the Kiwi coat crates or summer camps or, you know, making them do science fair, just enough that they realize that it's an option, that it doesn't have to be closed to them just because, um, because of their gender. So if they do have the interest to, to nurture it um, above and beyond because society itself will not do it for you. I feel like the best option is to give them a glimpse of what it's like. Like even my daughter who who like likes science when we do it at home, she comes back, she's like, oh, I don't think into science is kind of boring at school. And that's because they, they focus on what they can kind of teach at that age. But you know, the stuff that I do, you need so much math to understand what it is and how to do it that you don't get that until years down the road, right? But if you lose the kid already in fourth grade or in fifth grade, they won't even get to that point to learn about that career. So um, being able to show them examples, right, of people who are in the field who are doing that end thing and what it kind of means in layman's terms will at least give them something to reach for, even if they don't necessarily understand uh, how to do it at this pace, at least it'll give them something to hook on to for their imaginations to keep them going to the next, to the next level until you can uh, interest them. And then you got to find what, what hooks the kid, right? Every kid is different. And just because you like one aspect of science doesn't necessarily mean you like the other aspects of science. Like I, like oceanography and like marine biology, like I could care less about that. Like I don't, you know, like being in the ocean, I don't like animals or touching animals to say, but some kids are really into that and they're not into space, right? So, but if you just focus on like a blanket, only this much of it for any particular kid, you can't inspire their passion and get them interested in the, augment what they're already kind of biased into and and use that as a um, hook to, to increase their interest. day of landing the because of the whole covid they didn't actually let any of the photographers or videographers in mission control so they just had this like tiny camera that was mounted to the top of my 
my station. It was just this tiny little, like less than hand size camera. So it it was kind of easy to forget that that was there for the most part. And I kind of went through what I had to say. Um, I was surprised at how big it got. I mean, I, I knew that, you know, the internet could do that for certain people. Um, but it's always a hit or miss, like just because you have a certain role or uh, a certain position doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be you, right? Like the, the guy who was the face of the curiosity landing, I mean, he had some aspect, but it didn't necessarily go viral for him. Uh, the one that it did go viral for was a guy like sitting two rows back because he had a mohawk, you know, and that was new and interesting for the internet to see at, at uh, a JPL mission control room. So it was quite a surprise that it went that, um, that viral. And I, I only watched the video feed of the landing um, just a month ago when we had our, our six month anniversary. And that was the first time I actually saw it. I had kind of still was in a little bit of trauma and hadn't been able to watch the whole thing through. Uh, but that was when I realized like how much it was focused on me because that's not what it felt like for me in Mission Control. I had um, so many people like talking into my ear, uh, constantly calling out exactly what had happened that I was repeating on, you know, on the, the mission commentary side that um, it, there were, there were so many voices in my head that were going on that it, it definitely didn't feel like a one man show, but the way they, uh, they cut it in that sense, it, it sounded very much like a, a one person show, which it, it was not, it was a huge team effort to, to get to that point. Um, not just with the people on the phone, but there were so many people on WebEx and people that we were mattermosting with that it was a, yeah, for me, it was a, a huge team effort with everybody in my ear and we were all kind of talking at, at once. Perseverance came at a time where everyone really needed that, you know, positive light. There had been so much that had been going on with the pandemic and the election and the, the protests that this was something positive that had very little negative connotation that could be attached to it, right? It was solely for the purpose of knowledge. It was this amazing team effort that literally persevered through all of the obstacles over the last year to to get to this moment. Um, and it gave something for the whole world to, to kind of latch onto. So I think we got more attention and then people were at home, right? So they could, they, they could watch it in addition. And it was uh, it was in the middle of the day for the West Coast. You know, the previous uh, Curiosity Landing was at like 1030 at night or something. So um, this time we had a lot of schools who could watch. It was like in, in the school day, they, all the, the kids could um, be aware. And then, uh, I don't know, with the whole Me Too movement going on and with uh, Vice President Harris also with the, the Indian diaspora, it kind of was a confluence of events, I think, that led to the spotlight. <laughs> Teamwork is absolutely critical for for everything we do because it everything we do is so complicated, so much scope that there's there's no way you could do it without a really excellent, technically savvy, tight-knit team. And not just 
uh, a team at JPL. Like for Perseverance, we had team members all across NASA. I mean, for the entry, descent, and landing, it, the core team was Ames, NASA Ames, NASA, which was in Northern California, NASA Langley in Virginia, um, people at NASA Johnson Space Center in Texas, as well as the the crew here at NASA JPL. And that was the core team because that's uh, you needed all of those different expertise to make entry, descent, and landing work. So I think from the very start, when you come to JPL, you realize that everything you do is in these huge teams and and how to work that in. And, you know, you have sub teams and teams and uh, you really rely on everyone to do their part, right? Like the team is only as good as its as weakest link and you really rely on everyone um, to, to get their part done so that you can kind of build from from there. For the leadership aspect of it, um, it is something that NASA values because as I said, when you have these large teams, um, keeping them focused is a real challenge, right? Like you're, you have this like massive barge heading down a river and it's up to the, the leader in the front to make sure that it doesn't uh, hit anything and you still stay on course. Dr. Mohan is very accomplished, but she also has one regret and some advice for those making their way in the world today. There was a time after when I was getting ready to graduate from my PhD that I was considering multiple options. And one of the options that I was considering was to go into academia, you know, to to be a professor and to do research um, in the space field. And uh, versus industry. And I, I kind of knew I could do industry because I had worked at JPL before going to grad school. So I, I kind of knew what that was like. Um, but the the academia, I faced a lot of imposter syndrome of not being sure whether I, I could do it or not, or not being sure whether I'd be good at it. Um, so I, I doubted myself a lot for that and probably talked myself out of that, even, you know, which I don't know if it's a good or bad thing because I'm, I'm very happy where I am now, but uh, a little bit of a regret that I um, talked myself out of trying. So I never even applied to any um, positions because I kind of convinced myself that, no, no, you're better off going here because you're better at that as opposed to, to even trying to, you know, to see if I would have, could have done it. It's really hard because you have to get out of your own headspace a little bit. And uh, the thing that I regret is that if you never try because you convince yourself you're not going to do it, then you're not going to do it because the the first step of anything is to try. So in some sense, uh, you, you need to put the onus on the other people and saying, you, you just have to try if it, and accept that you maybe uh, won't get it. And it's fine if you think you won't get it, but at least try because then uh, you won't, you won't be limited to what you think of yourself. You know, your evaluation will be met by, you know, people who are in the field who are making that decision uh, based on what's best for them, for the position. And if you get it, then uh, at least you wouldn't have sabotaged yourself. And then that's one aspect where like you really were good enough for that position. um, And just that little effort of trying and leaving it to them to decide um, didn't cost you that position. 
uh, in the future. Thank you, Dr. Swati Mohan, for sharing your story of perseverance and more with us. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. That's a wrap for Season 2 of Voices of Exchange. We'll be back soon for Season 3. If you haven't yet, don't forget to subscribe to Voices of Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends, too. Voices of Exchange is a bi-weekly podcast brought to you by the Office of Alumni Affairs in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Our team includes Desmond Ferris, Asha Bay, Maria Iliadis, and Emily Rand. Have a question or a suggestion? Email us at voicesofexchange@state.gov, or reach out to us on Instagram at Voices of Exchange. You can also find out more information on our alumni and our global network at alumni.state.gov. This is Voices of Exchange.